of the Bible since we've been here so long. <clears throat> it was a year ago next month that we started in John chapter 1, and we're not done with John chapter 6 yet. We may be here a while. <clears throat> Let's go ahead and open up in prayer. Father, we ask for your mercy and blessing as we approach your word. We know that we can't understand it apart from your Holy Spirit, and I know that's especially true for me, that apart from your Holy Spirit, I can't understand your word. Uh, it's, it's contrary to my human flesh, and only by your spirit can I join with you in understanding and teaching your word. And I ask that by your Holy Spirit you speak, that you'd feed this flock, that, that we would all feed on your word, and that by your spirit we would drink of that living water. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, last week in John chapter 6, verses 51 through 59, we talked about a pretty hard passage that has been misused by people for centuries to teach that the church is to practice cannibalism and blood drinking. <clears throat> and the church is frequently accused of that by unbelievers. The Jews had a real hard time with that teaching because they thought that's what he was saying too. Uh, had they given it any thought at all or even asked some questions, they would have realized right away that he was comparing himself to the Passover lamb and that the Passover lamb, they did understand that that blood on the lintel and the two doorposts was for them. And that when they ate the flesh of that lamb, they were confessing that his blood was shed for them and that, his, that they were personally taking part in his flesh and his blood, that they knew that they personally needed a savior. So the Passover lamb was a wonderful picture of Jesus. <clears throat> but they had a hard time with it. And they complained about it. See, that's one of the options. When we have a hard passage in Scripture that we don't understand, or even a hard experience in our life that we don't understand, one of the options is to complain about it and argue. And that's the first thing they did. <clears throat> so we're going we're gonna to read about that. <clears throat> we'll come to kind of a crisis here in John chapter 6. Jesus had just taught that his flesh and blood were necessary for salvation necessary in, other, in order for people to have eternal life. And earlier we explained why it was such a hard thing for the Jews to accept, it, that it seemed to violate what they were taught. They were not to drink blood. They were not to eat human flesh. And the drinking blood was a capital crime, in fact. <clears throat> but there's different options when we run into something that's hard to understand. There's different ways we can respond one of them is obviously to say, hold it, I didn't get that. What's this about? And do some digging and find out. And that's a good thing to do. Uh, in Acts chapter 17, we read about a group of people in a little town called Berea. And it says that the, the people in Berea were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they heard, they received the word daily from Paul and the, Silas and the other people who were preaching. And then it says they searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. Find out. Dig it up. Look. Don't just reject it out of hand. <clears throat> the people in Thessalonica rioted over it, and Paul was only there for two weeks. Possibly three, but it's two Sabbath days for sure. Uh, and he had to leave town for, this, for his own safety and the safety of the believers. <clears throat> but in Berea, where he preached, the people listened, they heard it with all ready, readiness of mind, and then searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. That's a good response to a hard teaching. <clears throat> okay, that's one of the options. 
So let's say we have decided something's completely true. We still have options as to how to respond. If something is <clears throat> really hard to, to grasp, we still have options as to how to respond. So let's read this passage. We're going to be in John chapter 6, verses 60 through 66. <clears throat> It says, many therefore of his disciples, when they heard this, talking about his flesh and his blood, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying, who can hear it? Now remember, it says these are his disciples. There was hundreds of people following him. Earlier in the chapter, we saw some of them were following him because they wanted more bread and fish. He said so, that that's why they're here. But it says, many of his followers, when they had heard this, said, this is a hard saying, who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples were murmuring at it, he said to them, does this offend you? Are you having problems with this? What if you shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? Okay, that's a little bit of a packed statement because for him to have been there before and to be headed back there says he's not just human. Okay, because humans begin here on earth a child is conceived there's a new spirit there that wasn't there before and they're a new creation of God Jesus wasn't that way he was an eternal spirit born in a human body he didn't begin here he began he had already been in heaven left came here became a human lived and was telling them I'm getting ready to go back what are you going to do when you see me go back if you thought it was hard what I just said what are you going to do with this <coughs> He said, it is the spirit that quickeneth. Quickeneth is the old English word for it gives life. It brings you back to life. It brings to life. And the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Back in John chapter 1, we saw that <clears throat> in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. It says all things were created by him, and apart from him was nothing created that was created. And in verse 4 it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can't overpower it. So he says the, the word is life. The word quickens, and the word is spirit. <clears throat> but there are some of you who believe not, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who believed not and who should betray him. He knew that some of the people there were believers, some were not believers. He knew that one of them in particular was the one who was going to betray him. <clears throat> and he said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come to me except it were given unto him of my Father. In verse 66 is the sad note. It says, From that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Okay, next week we'll get back to the to the, the last four or five verses there in John chapter 6. But <clears throat> right now, I want to talk about separating believers from unbelievers. Now, Jesus knew who in that group were believers and who were not. I don't know. I do know that of those who stayed, at least one of them was not a believer. Because we're going to see in the next few verses, where we're not going today, but... We'll see that Judas was there. The twelve were there, and Judas was not a believer. Jesus said so. Back in John chapter in uh, forward in John chapter thirteen, Jesus said that Judas was not clean. He had not been cleaned by the word. He was not a believer. 
in John chapter 15, after Judas left, in John 15, 3, he's speaking to the remaining 11. He says, now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Judas heard all the same words as they did. The difference was Judas did not believe. See, so there's the dividing line between believers and unbelievers, not whether they're physically following Jesus or not. Because Judas kept on following, and a bunch of these people left. Some of them, we don't know which ones were believers, and some of the ones that stayed were not believers. So that's not the dividing line. <clears throat> but we can balk at hard teaching. Once we know something's true, we can, we can either recognize it, that it's true, and accept it, or we can argue with it, or we can finally reject it, rebel against that truth. When we read this passage, it's a hard passage for two reasons. One, it's pretty sad to see that these people abandoned their faith and walked away. It's, it's, it's sad when we see it today. I've known people personally that were shining examples of God's grace and for some reason fell into rebellion and walked away and never came back. And their life is a wreck today. And I mean, one of the young women that was instrumental in leading me to Christ subsequently within two years had walked away from her faith became an alcoholic and she's still alive today but her life is a wreck no men same way <clears throat> who walk away from the Lord bad things happen okay so that's a sad thing that's one thing that makes it hard but the other thing that makes it hard <clears throat> is that we even as believers we tend to equate discipleship with salvation they're not the same thing Salvation and discipleship are not the same thing. Look back quickly at John chapter 6, verse 47. How did Jesus say that we get eternal life? John chapter 6, verse 47, he says, He that believeth in me hath everlasting life. Period. John 5, 24 said, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me has, present tense, has everlasting life shall not, future tense, shall not come into condemnation, but has, perfect past tense, crossed over from death into life. It means you can't even go back. John 5.24 is a precious promise. If you haven't memorized that, please do. It covers your past, present, and future in one promise. There are people that think that salvation and discipleship are the same thing. And if you're not physically obeying, obeying Jesus right now and walking with him, then you're probably not saved. <clears throat> you see, I can look at some of those disciples. We look at one, Judas. He's not a believer. He was a disciple. Jesus chose him. He was one of the 12. And he stayed there when everybody else left. That did not make him a believer. See, he wasn't saved. I, I had a young woman who used to be in this church who was sitting right about where Kesia is today, and crying for Brother Judas for having lost his salvation. And I had to tell her, Judas was never saved. Jesus says so. He wasn't a believer. He finally showed his colors for who he really was, yes. But he was never a believer. And she had a hard time with that. She couldn't accept it. She thought he was a believer who had lost his salvation because she saw him as a disciple. He had to have been a believer. No, he wasn't. Jesus said so. Okay, we need to separate those two ideas. It's a hard concept. Judas is a prime example of someone who's a disciple but not a believer. Are there other examples of people who are believers but not disciples? Yeah. How about Lot? 
See, when I read the Old Testament account of Lot, I assumed Lot was not a believer. In fact, if anything, I would have thought maybe he's an example of somebody who's a believer but lost his salvation. I mean, look at the wreckage in his life. But I'd have been wrong on both counts. Because in First Peter chapter, excuse me, Second Peter chapter two, God says he was a righteous man, and God saved him out of Sodom because he was a righteous man, and that it says while he was there, his righteous soul was being vexed daily by the unrighteousness, the ungodliness of those around him. I never would have guessed that. He lost everything when God took him out of there, and there's examples. In, well, we're taught in First Corinthians chapter. 3, verses 10 through 16, that a believer can lose everything. They build on their life wood, hay, and stubble and says that our works are going to be tested by fire. So we can build on, our li- on that foundation of Christ. We can build gold, silver, or precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble, but that's going to be tested by fire. What? Our salvation? No, our works. And he says if any man's work is burned says he he himself will be saved yet as one escaping through the flames one is is one saved by fire through fire so if any man's work remains he'll receive a reward what a reward for being saved no a reward for works as a believer you're not saved by works you're not re- salvation is not a reward salvation is a gift free gift offered to everyone <clears throat> So Lot was a good example of someone who was a believer but did not walk with God. If he'd been in the New Testament, I'd say he didn't follow Jesus. <clears throat> Why might somebody fall into that category? Well, there's a lot of different reasons. There's a number of biblical examples of a true believer balking at commands from God. Uh, John the Baptist initially balked when Jesus came to him to be baptized. He says, what? No. I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus says, allow it to be so for now. King James says, suffer it to be so for now. That's what suffer means. Allow. Submit yourself to this. And it says he changed his mind. He went ahead and obeyed. He baptized him. Peter initially refused to have Jesus wash his feet, but he changed his mind and allowed Jesus to wash his feet. Jonah initially refused to go to Nineveh, but after some convincing and a big fish, he went to Nineveh, not with a very good attitude. He wanted those people to to burn. He did not want them to repent. He saw them as the enemies of Israel, but he did what he was told to do. He preached, and they, they repented, and he was mad at God because they repented. So he didn't have a good attitude, but he did obey. He went and did what God told him to do. You see a pattern there? These were genuine believers who balked at what God told them to do, but they changed their mind. That's called repentance. The word repentance that's that's usually translated repentance is metanoia. It means change your mind. That's what they did. They changed their mind. They went back and did what they should have been doing. That's what God calls us to do. Change your mind and go back and do what we should have been doing. So as I'm reading John chapter 6, verses 60 through 66, are we talking about believers or unbelievers that walked away and wouldn't walk with Jesus anymore? I don't know. Some of them were not believers. Jesus said so. But he didn't say all of them weren't. And I know for a fact that 
at least one of the ones that stayed was not a believer. So I can't tell by that fact alone, by whether they kept walking with Jesus or not. Lot was a perfect example of somebody who did not keep walking with Jesus. Okay? The teaching they had heard right before then about his body and his blood being necessary for salvation was hard enough. They had a hard time with that. <clears throat> that specific teaching was difficult enough that people still struggle with it today, as we've already mentioned. But they had a choice to make. They could either accept it and accept the fact that they couldn't fully grasp his meaning. I, I don't understand lots of things about God. I, there's, I don't understand why he would love me in the first place. That doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand why he would die for the human race. That doesn't make sense to me. But he chose to, and I'm really glad for that, and I accept it. I don't understand it, but I accept it. <clears throat> I don't understand the Trinity. It's there. I teach it. I teach it faithfully because it's so clearly taught in the Scripture, but I don't understand how it could be. That's beyond my ability, above my pay grade, as they say. <clears throat> so that's one choice. I can accept it and accept the fact that I can't fully grasp its meaning. I can argue about it and try to force it to fit my understanding. There's people that deny the full meaning of the Trinity by saying, well, it's just see, it's one God, but he manifests himself in three different ways. No, that's not quite true, because otherwise Jesus wouldn't say, the Father who sent me is greater than I. It wouldn't be true if they're the same person manifesting himself in three ways. It's three separate persons who each individually are fully God and collectively are God. Do I understand that? No, but that is what it teaches. There's other things we argue about. We argue about, you know, what communion means. We argue about how people are saved. We argue about all kinds of things that are clearly taught in Scripture because we have a hard time with accepting the fact that it doesn't happen the way we think it ought to happen, that God's Word is above our thinking. <clears throat> Third possibility is they could flatly reject it as just being unthinkable. You know, I, I have a problem with the crucifixion because in our laws, if someone dies for my sins, that was a total miscarriage of justice, that our laws failed if somebody else is punished for my wrongdoing. But under God's law, right from the beginning, he initiated the law of the substitute. Clear back in Genesis chapter 3, he pointed out that there could be a substitute for me that would die in my place. And that's what happened when he clothed Adam and Eve in the, blood, in the skins of those animals. That was the first blood sacrifice. Somebody died for them. And we see that all the way through the scripture. That trail of blood travels from Genesis chapter 3 all the way through Revelation. Do I understand that? No, I don't, because it defies our laws. God's laws are above ours. <clears throat> So some of these people were arguing, just saying that it was a hard saying, it was difficult to grasp, and Jesus knew their hearts. He knew who believed and who did not. He also knew who would eventually betray him, and we see that it was Judas, and we see that Judas stayed. So Jesus had just told him that his flesh and blood, as pictured in the Passover lamb, were absolutely necessary to their salvation, and that their faith in him was the only entrance into eternal life. That's what we kept going back to in John six forty seven. He that believeth in me has everlasting life. Present tense. They had a hard time with that. There's still many today that struggle with the concept that Jesus is the only way. 
to salvation. They think, well, what about the billions of people that don't believe in Jesus? They can't all be wrong. They can't all be headed for hell. Well, that's emotionally an attractive argument, but logically it's, it's sheer idiocy. What about all the people that die of malaria? Is that fair? Well, it's not a matter of fair. It's a matter of fact. If they don't get the necessary medicines to either prevent their getting malaria or to, to heal them of that malaria, they, they'll die, many of them. Bubonic plague. They have medicines that can cure it. But if you don't get that medicine and you get that disease, you're going to die. Fair isn't, isn't a part of it. Reality. We're trying to embrace reality here. Yes, Jesus is the only way to approach God. Jesus is our only hope for salvation. And whether you think it's fair or not doesn't enter in. It's a fact. Uh, just a few years ago, they developed a, a medicine by which to cure hepatitis C. Previously to that, the best you could do is keep it at bay and keep a person alive for a long time, but you couldn't cure it. Well, now there is a cure for it. It works on, I think, 80 85% of the people, maybe more. But the fact is it costs so much to get that that it's completely out of the reach of most people that suffer from the disease. They simply are not going to get it. Is that fair? No, it's, it's reality. That cure didn't even exist until just a few years ago. And the fact that it exists now does not put it within reach of the people that need it. You think about this, how much does the gospel cost for you to lay hands on it, claim it by faith, and be saved? It's totally free. Okay, So the only issue is whether we make it available to people and then whether they're willing to receive it. The cost is zero. Jesus paid the full price. The cost to us is zero. <clears throat> Today, I'm told there's a collective antivenin in Australia that <clears throat> covers about, is effective for about 85 of the 140 different kinds of venomous critters in Australia that can kill you by biting you. Uh, and the government there has really tried to make that antivenin available all over the country. Uh, it won't cover all of them, but it covers the most likely. Um, suspects. So even if you don't know what kind of snake bit you, you can get that antivenin and probably it'll be covered. But if you either can't get to where that antivenin is or you refuse to use it, you're going to die. It doesn't matter whether you think that's fair. You may think, well, there ought to be another way. You know, all paths lead to God. No, they don't. Unless you think leading to God at the great white throne judgment, because, yeah, they, they all lead there. Apart from Jesus, they all lead there. You'll end up standing before God and ended up in hell. Fair? It has nothing to do with fair. It has to do with fact. And there's so many things in this world that we accept as being fact. I've never heard anybody successfully argue against the law of gravity. You know? Well, I identify as being gravity-free. Oh, Really? I saw a picture the other day of a motorcycle way out in front of a bunch of bicyclists, and they were saying this new motorcyclist who identifies as a bicyclist is setting world records in bicycling. Sorry, that doesn't compute. Doesn't work. We do not have the authority to change God's law. We don't have the authority to change reality. What we do have is the option to grab on to the reality that Jesus' blood paid for my sins and that I can have eternal life. That's what we have. <clears throat> the blood of Jesus was shed once for all. 
is God's only solution for the lost state of the human race. The church has tried over the years to make that salvation available worldwide. There's only two real barriers, our reluctance to share it with other people and their reluctance to believe in it. I know there are certain governments that have tried to suppress the gospel. Usually it doesn't work. Usually when you try to suppress the gospel, it grows. I've heard that the church in China and some of the other totalitarian governments is growing under severe persecution, but it's growing. So this is the teaching that the Jews were originally stumbling over in John chapter 31 through 51, where he said, I am the bread of life. He goes on to say, he that believeth in me hath everlasting life. But then he said, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life. Okay, so they were, they were struggling with that. They were rebelling against that in John chapter 6, verse 60. And Jesus asked, do you think that was hard? Does that offend you? What are you going to think when you see me physically ascend back into heaven where I came from? So why was that a test? Why, he's testing the character of their faith. What is it you're really believing in? Why would that be a test? You see, they'd already balked at the hard teaching that faith in his blood is the only hope for salvation. Now he's pointing out why he is the only hope for salvation. It's that he's God in the flesh. He's the deity they were claiming to worship. And they were about to see him prove it by resurrecting from the grave and ascending back into heaven. He said, what are you going to do with that? You see, so long as I see Jesus as simply human, I'm going to have problems with him because no matter what anybody else might attribute to him I'm going to struggle with his authority or who are you to tell me well he's God that's who he is uh, I'm going to have I'm going to question his unique exalted position what makes him so great he's the creator he's God that's what makes him so great he's not just this Jewish carpenter that lived in obscurity for most of his life uh, he's not just a man and will resent his authority and resent the fact that other people are actually worshiping this one that I see as a human. I had a pastor tell me, I don't want people praying to Jesus. Really? Why? Why do you have a problem with that? Well, evidently he had a problem with the deity of Christ. And when I talked with him further, he says, why, we're supposed to go straight to God. He's the creator. I said, Jesus is the creator. And he said, well, then the Nicene Creed is wrong. And I said, good, that's fine. Because God says in Hebrews chapter 1, that Jesus is the creator of all things. God the Father, speaking to God the Son, says, And thou, Lord, in the beginning didst lay the foundation of the earth and the heavens of the works of thine hands. Really? God the Father says God the Son created all things. And now I'm going to deny it? I'm going to say, no, 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 God the Father created it all. No, Jesus is God, and he is the creator, and he is the Savior. You see, if you have a problem with his deity, then you're going to have a problem with the rest of who he is, too. Is it possible to be a believer and not understand that Jesus is God? Yeah, it is. Especially if you're a brand new believer or you've become a believer but you've had zero Bible teaching. Because you can't go very far before you run into the deity of Christ. If you read the Gospel of John, you can't miss it at all. It's right there. It smacks you in the face before you got through the first chapter. <clears throat> Some people do see that truth. The man I was just talking about, the pastor that told me he didn't want people praying to Jesus, I think fell into this group. They do see that truth, and they struggle with it, and eventually rebel against it, denying his deity. Now, in that case, 
I do question, are you really a believer? Because for someone to go that far and then say, no, that's, that's no. He's fine as the Savior, but I, he's not God. Well, what Jesus said about that in John chapter 5, verse 22 to 23, 22, he says, the Father judges no man. He's committed all of judgment unto the Son. He gives the reason in verse 23. He says that all men should honor the, Father, honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father who sent him. If you don't believe Jesus is God, if you, if you deny his deity, deny who he really is, you're not honoring God. So for a man to tell me, no, I'm fine with Jesus as the Savior and I want to worship God alone, then you're not worshiping God alone. Jesus says, if you're not honoring the Son, you're not honoring the Father. So I would have a real question how he got there. If he really didn't know, that's a different story. But if he did know and rejected that teaching, then I suspect that he's not a believer. I could be wrong. He could have been a believer that simply got some bad, bad teaching and gradually got his mind turned around to where he no longer was willing to believe in the deity of Christ. And I can understand that. In fact, this guy, I suspect that was the case. I know that he started off at Moody Bible Institute, Chicago, which is an excellent school. But he went to some seminaries in Germany and France thereafter where they don't teach the gospel. And very likely they torqued his mind around to where he no longer had the simple faith he'd had before. In fact, I, I questioned him on that one day. I said, you know, I believe that when you left Moody Bible Institute, this is not where you were. He just laughs and says, oh, I'm so far beyond that now. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I'd be very concerned about how they arrived at that point, whether they actually believed and trusted Jesus for their, as their Savior and recognized that he was God in the flesh and then lost that faith because they were so badly taught by somebody or whether they never believed it to begin with. Yeah. And I, I can't see their heart. It says Jesus knew who believed and who didn't. But can I know for me, can I know for sure for myself. Now see, the Jews shouldn't have had a, a struggle with this idea about his deity. They had a prophecy from, nine, from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, saying that this promised son that was going to be given to them, it says that the son was to be called the everlasting father. And we, we forget about that part. We say his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. We forget about that everlasting father piece in there, that Jesus was called the everlasting father. We have a hard time with that. They shouldn't have. They had that as part of the prophecy from time immemorial. <clears throat> but there is no argument. It's simply stated as a fact, simply to be accepted, or you can reject it and walk away, and that's what they were doing. So let's talk about that question briefly, the question of the deity of Christ. The fact that Jesus truly is God is a core teaching of the Bible. It's not a light thing. It's not just a side issue. It's, it's a core teaching. In John chapter 1, we read that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I'm aware that there are cults that have changed it to say was a God. Nope. It says was God. And it goes on to say, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were created by him, and apart from him was nothing created that was created. So he's the creator God. We get down to verse 4. It says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. He was our only source of light and life. In verse 14, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is that the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in verse 18, it says, 
No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who's in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him unto us. Oh. So when we see Jesus, when we see God in the flesh, as Abraham did, and as other believers in the Old Testament did, we're seeing Jesus over and over and over, all the way through the Old Testament. <clears throat> he was the creator God who made all things, both material and immaterial. We just saw that in John 1.3. He was the speaking God who walked in the garden in the cool of the day and talked with Adam and Eve. That's who clothed them in the skins of these slain animals, was Jesus. Looking forward to his own sacrifice. He was the promising God who promised Abraham a son and talked with him face to face and ate his beef and bread and butter and milk. That's who that was. He was the judging God who destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, but sent two angels first to drag out Lot and his daughters and his wife. He was the miracle-working God who judged Egypt and rescued Israel. So we see that he's the creator of all things, he's the eternal judge of all things, and he's the promised Savior. In John chapter, we already read John 5, 24. He that believeth on him who sent me, he says, has everlasting life, shall not come into condemnation, but is passed over from death into life. But in John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me, and I know them, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Period. He says, No man can pluck them out of my hand. <clears throat> now, either all of this is true, or the Bible's not true. Either all of this is true, or we don't have a Savior, because Jesus propounded all these things. He taught all these things. He preached all these things. And either they're all true or he was a liar. If he's a liar, then he's not the Savior. And the Bible's not true. And we have nothing to put our faith in. We have to take the whole thing. There's no argument to be done here. Sure, I might struggle with it, but let it be struggling after the fact of faith that, yes, I believe it, I accept it. I'd sure like to be able to understand this. Fine, struggle that way. But don't argue against it. It's either all true or it's not true. Either it's all true or Jesus isn't the Savior. That's a simple fact. There, is no, there are no degrees of truth here. All the cults speak highly of Jesus, saying he's a mighty spirit being, a great teacher, a prophet, or even a, a lesser God. <clears throat> but they can never admit that he's literally the sovereign, almighty God, because if they did, then they would have to admit that they themselves are not serving God and that they themselves are going to have to face his judgment as those who have rebelled against his authority <clears throat> and denied his righteousness. So when he taught these things and hinted at these things by hint stating, you're going to see me going back into heaven, they just said, okay, that's too much, and they quit walking with him. So for myself, though, I can't tell on anybody else's heart. I don't know where anybody else's heart is. I can... I can observe from their behavior and their words and, and be pretty sure that these people are believers. There isn't anybody in this room that I have any doubt about their particular faith. You know. But how can I know that I am saved? And I've known people that apparently were genuine believers but who abandoned their faith. Their life reflected that loss. They're, they were sad wrecks of what used to be a glorious reflection of God's grace. Are they still saved? 
right? Here's the question we got to ask. <clears throat> you can ask yourself this. Has there ever been a time in my life when I placed my full trust in Jesus' shed blood at the cross as being full payment for my sins? That that's my only hope for salvation. If the answer is yes, then you are saved. Why? Because Jesus said so. He says, he that believeth in me has everlasting life. And prior to that, the previous chapter, he made an even stronger promise that you're never going to be judged. That means you can't lose that eternal life. That you've already crossed over from death into life. And as I've explained in the past, that's in perfect tense. It means it's a done deal and it can't be undone. It has permanent effect for the future. You can't go back to being an unbeliever. Now, if I am one of his sheep, the normal thing for a sheep to do is to follow the shepherd. Is it possible for a sheep to not follow the shepherd? Absolutely it is. And what happens? Well, if you're not following the shepherd, if you're not walking with Jesus, then you're not under his protection, and you're, you're prone to getting attacked by your enemies. You're, you can't avail yourself of his protection. You're enlisted in his army, but you've refused to put on the armor that he's given you. Okay, that's not too smart. A, a soldier who won't wear his helmet in a firefight is probably going to end up with a hole in his head. You know, won't wear that flak jacket, you're probably going to end up with shrapnel wounds. You're enlisted in his army and refusing to wear the armor. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. That's the normal life for a Christian, is to follow Jesus. As one of his sheep, if you fail to follow him, if you're not walking with Jesus, then you're not going to be enjoying your walk with him, the very very least you can expect is unfruitfulness. The very next thing I can expect is the absence of joy and peace. I'm not happy. So even though I am a believer, if I'm no longer walking with Jesus, then I'm not benefiting from that relationship in the here and now. I have eternal life, and that's great. But I'd like to enjoy his presence now. I'd like to follow him today. I'd like to experience his presence in my life on a day-by-day -day basis. I have to get up in the morning, every morning, and start off by saying, good morning, Lord, and then putting on the full armor of God, because if I forget, it's not going to be long before I'm snarling at things and mad because things aren't going the way I want, and I'm not walking with Jesus. I, I have to either walk close or not at all. <clears throat> Following the shepherd is the normal walk for a believer. Okay, so this is what happened here in John chapter 6. Some of these disciples may have been true believers, some were not. A whole bunch of them walked away. Jesus knew which were which. We don't. We can examine our own hearts and see where we stand with God and decide where we ought to be and what we need to change in order to get back where we were. We want to walk with God. We want to have that peace. We want to be in good relationships with the people around us. Then this is how we do it. We learn to walk with Jesus. And that's not the, dis the division between a believer and an unbeliever. The division between an unbeliever and a believer is whether you've actually trusted Jesus' blood as full payment for your sins. That's the division. But what you do with that is going to divide whether you're a happy believer or an un unhappy believer. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we're going to have communion together. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we ask you to open up our eyes to our own condition as believers, and we encourage our hearts to repent to look see where we've gone and where we've been and where we want to walk with you and to, to make that daily walk a reality to repent go back and follow you we ask these things in jesus name amen